Hello, hello and welcome to another episode of Putting It Together. Uh, a tiny bit late once again, but with you nonetheless. Only a day late this time. And um, the reason being, I wasn't too well yesterday, so I had to take a wee bit of time, although I had to do the show, um, just a wee bit of time to recover, um, which I've been doing, whilst also doing two shows today. So, you know, I didn't have that much time. And I have to hand it to my pal Ross Mackay, who is a long-time listener and um, has been inspired me because he's very vocal on social media about how his arts practice and his mental health are intertwined and um, one affects the other therefore and sometimes he's not so good and whatever um, and that's the case with me in the last couple of days um, haven't been great and my mental health has required a bit more maintenance than usual I'm not going to get too specific with you but um, it's been challenging and I decided that the podcast could wait 24 hours um, and nothing's fallen apart. So I'm here and I got a great interview for you today. This is with Kieran Hurley, who um, is a, a well-known writer. I'm sure you've seen his work. Um, started out as a solo artist and, and now writes for many, many different venues and contexts. The most recent piece of work that I saw of his was Square Go, which has been talked about a lot on the show, which he co-wrote with my good pal Gary McNair. And uh, he's also now writing a play, or I think just about to complete a play which is going on at the Traverse uh, this Christmas season. A non-Christmas play at the Traverse, which tends to be what they do. Although, in the other room, at the same time, we'll be given a wee bit of the McGonagall Chronicles. Which, whilst not Christmassy, is certainly jovial and set around a fire. So that's something in terms of the Christmas element, which we will be bringing you in early December. And uh, as for the as for the mental health stuff, I, I did feel it's been alluded to on this show plenty of times and people talk about how it's um, involved with their practice and how it's, you know, whether it gets in the way or it has to be um, considered, you know, all the time um, when we're working in the way that we do. And it's true of everybody, of course, um, but I feel like we're acutely aware of it um, in vocational uh, Collins, because we we have less of a distinction between what's work and what's life, and what's the difference, and where does where is the time, uh, you know, where's the the clock where you tie your clock out, whatever I'm trying to say, you know what I'm trying to say, uh, you know, those things are less defined, the lines are blurred in our business, so there's more and more conversations about how our mental health is being affected by our work or how it's affecting our work, even if it hasn't um any struggles haven't been brought on by the job specifically and sometimes it's hard to nail down you know which came first and sometimes um it's not important to nail down which came first because the important thing is being safe and well in any given moment and that's what I've had to focus on the last couple of days and big thanks to the people that I'm working with um and to and to all my close friends who know th- who they are, who have helped with that, um, and I'm glad to say that today I'm okay, and I really enjoyed talking to Kieran. I got a great kick out of it, and I'm glad to be able to bring you this interview, um, because he talks so much about it's really specifically about his process, which is one of the things I love about talking to writers, particularly, is to get into the bones of how is it done, and he also talks about feeling like a fraud and and saying you know that's not said enough and it's not and I know that people can identify with it and it happens again in all walks of life and it certainly has happened to me tons 
of with all different disciplines in the arts and out with uh, just feeling you know imposter syndrome waiting to get found out and I'm sure people can identify with that and Kieran talks openly about it and that's great I love the way people open up on the show and uh, long may that continue and that's kind of that's what I'm trying to do uh, right now because it's really easy to perform a version of yourself and while I agree that I am still doing that right now um, it's a fairly paired back version of myself in order to say the things I'm saying so um, I felt like it was part of my duty with doing the show to to do that and because of how much we talk about that stuff within the interviews themselves it's crazy for me to do the intro to those interviews and and to not acknowledge if that's part of my reality um, on the day that I'm doing it but also with both the intros and the interviews to keep those conversations open about mental health because I think it's important for us as an industry and as colleagues and as a community um, to feel able to talk about that stuff um, not just one-on-one and in, in hushed conversations um, but m- more openly and involving more different agencies as we need to. So that's um, an unplanned ramble through my mind at the moment and I, and I hope that um, in some way it might help somebody or open um, a conversation or, or, or a valve somewhere. Um, so I thank you for taking the time to listen to it and I'm glad now to bring you my interview with the fantastic Kieran Hurley whose work can be seen as I said at the Traverse this coming Christmas and um, also in, in many other exciting contexts and he's another one who's very vocal and um, prolific on Twitter so do make sure that you follow him on Twitter as well. So thank you very much for listening and I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I enjoyed doing it and here we are it's me and it's Kieran Hurley and we are putting it together. So what's happening right now? You're well. That always, always right now. You're writing. Uh, Is that true? I, I suppose so. I mean, I, uh, always right now. I'm supposed to be writing. <laughs> yeah, that's different. It's a really different thing from being like in a constant state of uh, productive artistic creation, which isn't actually necessarily true. Yeah. Uh, but I right now there's a few different things bubbling away. Uh, that I'm that I'm working on. Do you want me to tell you what they are? Is that interesting? I think uh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Well, the one that's um, most recently been doing a thing with with um, uh, Gary McNair called Square Go that was at the Fringe. Yes. But that was actually something that was written many 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 years ago. So what was you know, that, uh, it was actually a bit of a unusual thing for me and Gary to come back to it and knock our heads together again and sort of look at this thing that had been sort of sitting in our drawer. Well, not sitting in a drawer. It had been a part of active conversations with folk that just, you know, had been going on for quite a wee while. Man um, test. Ah, yeah, the back of the man test, yeah. I remember man test. Um, I did a voiceover for it. You did do a voiceover for the man test. In about, what, 2010 or something? Right, so as, you, as I say, conversations have been going on for quite a long yeah. while. Uh, and then the script square go that came out of that was... Um, yeah, we had to sort of dust it down once it finally got picked up by mm-hmm. Francesca Moody to take it to the fringe in, in Payne's Plough. Uh, but but that was a joy. It was a joy to sort of revisit this like old friend that uh, essentially yeah. is something that came out of me and Gary, um, uh, kind of just writing to make each other laugh. Actually, yeah. Like you mentioned the man test for people that don't know what that is, which will be the vast majority, if not a complete one hundred percent, of the <laughs> listeners to this. Um, uh, 
me and Gary were invited by uh, producer Angie Bual down to make a piece for a night that she was curating for Shunt uh, in yeah. London back when Shunt still had a had a venue. It was their place in Bermondsey, and uh, and for those that don't know, Shunt uh, was uh, they put on like big um, uh, hedonistic club nights that were full of like art. Uh, experiences and performances and stuff like that, and oh, uh, yeah. and it was all part of the one big night. And we came to, and we did a thing uh, that was uh, uh, like a man test. Um, I don't know how else to describe it. It was like a competition between me and Gary in a series of. Uh, contests of different notions of masculinity with the idea being that those competitions would escalate to a um to a kind of breaking point where the whole absurdity of the whole thing became uh, obvious and and it was and it's a critique it's a critique of these kind of like social ideas around gender and around masculinity and maleness but that sort of didn't happen (laughs) everyone just sort of kept cheering it on because they were in at a club night and they were drunk so we sort of took context context. aye aye so so um so that was an interesting learning experience for us we sort of took what we liked from that and then uh decided that actually maybe we were not very good at making uh sort of durational live art performance pieces and maybe we're better at telling stories and maybe <laughs> if we were to do that but with this same material we could write a play together that might actually manage this whole discussion a lot better mm. uh, which is what, was, what Square Go became which we sort of did that made that on in residency uh, living in the basement of the BAC and just the way that you can do sometimes when there's just the two of you and you've got a week and we just kind of threw everything at the wall and tried to make each other laugh as well as trying to tell this story and yeah. the script was something that we just weren't sure if anyone else was ever really going to connect with or understand or whether it was just something that had occurred in this weird collaboration between the two of us. But then fortunately, people did like it. They went on at the Fringe this year, Finn Hertog directed it, he did a great job. He did, a, he did. We had a, a fantastic cast, we had um, amazing music um, and uh, and it was it was pure Barry, so it was. I think the thing about it is, look, for, it speaks to me because, for two reasons, two big reasons, and one is because I'm male and I grew up in the West of Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, also I think it's because I'm a human and I grew up. Yeah, that's interesting. You yeah. know, and I think I heard a lot of people say, yeah, it was about two wee boys yeah, yeah. but actually it was about two wee people yeah that's interesting I I mean I, I think the challenges that those wee boys face are quite specific to challenges that wee boys face but I, I think yeah. what I, but what I like about that response and I like that response very much is that um, is that y- there's a compassion there for the boys yeah. I think so much of this work that, that is it's quite zeitgeisted right now so much of this work about um, about maleness or masculinity would would for very good, justifiable, understandable reason, be keen to, to, to demonise folk. And sometimes that's necessary and mm, correct. Yeah. But with these two wee sort of like young boys that were sort of navigating these violent ideas about what it means to grow up to be a man for the first time and not really understanding it and trying to make sense of it, yeah. our hope is that you would engage with their story and, and, and with a kind of, as you say, humanity and compassion and want them to survive all this and want them to figure out a way through all this because yeah. you're kind of rooting for them because they're just wee guys. Their heads are full of mints, of, like, but it's mints that like, we, like us as a society, have have put there, do you know? Well, yeah, it's and, watching them being fed it and yeah. thinking, well, no wonder. Yeah, exactly. Stuff happens Aye, the exactly. way it does. So it's, what's, been, what's really gratifying more than anything almost, actually, in terms of the audience response to that show was... Uh, 
was how that 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 did land for folk. Like people yeah. liked the boys, and that's good. And of course, that's you know credit credit to the two actors as well who did a great job. Yeah, and there's there's a whole thing about playing young as well that I people might question or yeah. you think it, it could be quite difficult or how do you do it without being ridiculous? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that um that the, the production got right was um was to not try and make a secret of the fact that here's two men in their thirties, right? Mm-hmm. Like because actually they played young brilliantly and you could just believe on some level that they were sort of 13, 14 year old boys or whatever. But, uh, but actually it's not just a play about boys, as you say, it's a play about humans, but it's not just a play about boys. It's a play about boys who become men. It's a play about how men end up the way they are. Yes. And there's something about having these two men in the space yep. doing that, like figuring out all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, in these absurd wrestling costumes and the full ridiculousness of like just two men in that situation yeah. um that for me was 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 actually a really important part of it like do you know like so i thought i thought finn uh, and the production handled all of that like really really well also because it's just quite a big ask for a 13 year old actor to carry yeah that script it's not i, I, I it's, borderline unethical i think really to be honest so <laughs> yeah um, i know what you mean yeah. but also the the comedy in it is very specific Aye, totally. and timing is absolutely Aye, totally, key. To- totally key totally so to key. have two really experienced comic actors Aye, brilliant I, unbelievable yeah. yeah and a joy a joy for me to, to, to just watch them as well so i and and the so interesting thing as well about the way it's set or because it was in that venue yeah is that they get they, they're allowed to work the room well, I think like it, was, it, it, it really found its home in that venue. Yeah. Like, it really, really did. The whole thing, the whole play is staged um, uh, kind of like it's a live sporting event because yeah. it's happening, at least partially, in the protagonist Max's imagination uh, as he prepares for a fight at the, uh, at the school gates, as he prepares for his square go. Um, and so there's this sense of like an uh, of like an arena like uh, atmosphere yeah. uh, in his mind as he imagines this sort of uh, wrestling uh, scenario playing out and uh, and the audience are engaged directly in all that and so the roundabout is this really small playing space um, and it's all entirely in the round as, as the name would suggest and it just lent itself perfectly for building that atmosphere and I think that was quite a thrilling thing for a lot of people that come to see work in that venue quite a lot as well to see the venue's space be utilised in a way that was um, so uh, sympathetic towards it, because yeah. it's quite an unusual space. Yeah. So I, pure dead chuffed with that one, so I was. <laughs> Good. And now you're now you're writing away, you were telling me about your wee shed. I've got, yeah, I've got a wee shed in the back of the garden where I sit and write, um, like Roald Dahl. Uh, it's quite a big shed actually. Uh, That's good. Yeah, it's is good, it warm huh? though? Uh, we're encountering our first, it's just new, so we're encountering uh-huh. our first um, uh, 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 issues with that just now, but it's not, it's, it is, it's fine. It just needs to, I just need to figure out how to heat it properly and then it'll be grand. Yep. Um, but I, uh, what am I working on a play just now that's not confirmed for a thing? So it's always a bit like, do I talk about that or do I not? Because. Yeah. Uh, not for any contractual reason over and above just embarrassing myself by saying <laughs> this thing is happening and I'm excited about it only to find out in six months time that, that no it's not uh, which is a thing that can happen quite a lot in the life of a freelance writer yes. so I'm working on a thing that, uh, that I hope will happen it's an adaptation of a classic play right? and that's what I've been working on uh, uh, today but then I've also got coming up 
and am I just going to prattle on about the stuff that I've got coming up? Is that work, good? Work yeah, away, yeah. Man. Nice. Okay. Thanks for me. Um, I've got. Uh, <laughs> I'll just plug stuff, man, and just utilise your uh, your listenership to see if well, I can. Well, it's not Squarespace yeah, yet, yeah, so it might as well be I, your work. Well, exactly, right? Um, so. Uh, uh, I've got a, I've got a play coming up at the Traverse in December, mm-hmm. which I'm really excited about because it's the Traverse and it's the home of new writing in Scotland, and it feels like a really nice thing to have a play there. And for it to be uh, directed by Orla um, before she leaves is a really lovely thing. So, yeah, sure I, so um, that's called Mouthpiece, uh, and that is a play um, set in Edinburgh, where I grew up, mm. uh, and it's a play about a, a woman who is a writer. Uh, who comes into contact with a young boy uh, who is an artist or he he would never call himself an artist he just does pictures but Mm -hmm. he is an artist he just doesn't know that he's an artist because he doesn't have the kind of cultural vocabulary that would allow himself to call himself an artist Um, it's a play about class really so this middle class writer comes up meets this this boy from a working class community essentially um and quite a troubled uh, troubled guy in many ways, and decides to write his life into a play. Right. Uh, and the it's a two-hander, it's just the two of them, and it becomes a kind of conversation around the inherent violence of having to rely on someone else to tell your story for you, and, and around um, what happens when we do that, uh, and around who has the right to speak, and around issues of class and access in relation to culture and theatre and all right. that kind of stuff. So... Hi, it's a it's a big it's a, I mean it's a little play in that it's just two actors um, about an hour and a half long, mm-hmm. but it's uh, but it's full of quite big uh, ambitious ideas. So it's course, been quite yeah. a big one for me to write, and it's been in development for quite a long time. So I'm quite excited to finally get it sort of out into the world. Smashing. So that's been a aye, I'm going to do some more some more tweaks on that this week before bringing it back over. There's, I mean, it's a never ending thing. At some point, you just have to go. Well, that's it. It's finished now. That's it. Oh, it's but even then, it's not. It's you know? horrible. So yeah, yeah. But aye, that's what's that's what's coming up. The now. Brilliant. Those are those are the things. So you've got this thing of you're talking about the two hander. I mean, it's it, it's a fairly popular format, and also the the hour and a half length, which is very much in vogue. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, what's the sort of what are the structural concerns when you're writing for that length? Is it is that a three act play to you? Oh, that's a fun, that's a good question. Um, I went um a lot of the stuff that I write, especially stuff that I wrote early on, is like one hour long and sometimes just for me to perform, so like a monologue, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's like a one thing. Then there's um the other thing that I've been writing just now is like a six hander at least that's mm-hmm. an adaptation of an even bigger play that will be up to two hours but could be shorter actually when it's when it's finished um and that's like a really new experience for me but i actually don't it's like really new like i'm learning a yeah. lot about how to actually tell a story on that scale weirdly actually i learned a lot about telling a story on that scale from diverging into other um uh uh mediums like I was writing a, a, a screenplay and stuff and, right. and, and and that kind of has then informed some of that for me even though it's a completely different thing and it is a completely different thing um but with it with this with this two-hander that's 90 minutes long yeah 
oh, I don't know. I wish I could sit here and be like, well, this is how you approach that. And this is how you do that. And mm. then do the kind of introductory workshop on structure for you and so on. But like, actually, I just feel like a fraud so often when I'm writing. And I think that people don't talk about that enough. Like, I think that's how quite a lot of people actually feel, if I'm honest. But um, About all different disciplines. About all, yeah, totally. That's the game, yeah. Uh, but there's a, there's... There, there are there are challenges. Each plays a new learning experience. Some of them, mm-hmm. some of them have come out like super, super fast in a matter of weeks, supported by a mm-hmm. by a process around that, um, and by work with other collaborators and stuff. But like I did a show called Heads Up that was um, that was a really that was really rapidly created mm-hmm. with very little money, uh, just because I had an impulse to do a thing, because um, and that was a play that was a monologue. Uh, performed by me but it's a monologue with multiple different character voices running through it so it's a little structurally different than a lot of other other monologues it was only an hour long but the thing was uh, the thing was written very very quickly but I had other collaborators in the room before the thing was even close to being finished which isn't normally what happens in a conventional like new writing uh, commissioning process so it wasn't uh, like here's the script here's the and script and now sound designer and composer you can overlay on top of that your yeah. own material it was actually me and MJ McCarthy mm-hmm. were in a room while I was still developing character ideas so the the, the, the music and the storytelling are evolving together um, in a way where they both become integral to each other and actually uh, through that I'm then writing in a way that is different than how I would have been writing if I'd just been sitting at a desk on my own. So there's stuff yeah. in that text that is like rhythmic, um, that is a rhythmic thing that is a response to some ideas that I've been playing with, with uh, Alex Swift, the director, and with MJ McCarthy, the the, 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 the musical director. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's informing the creation of the text. And sometimes when it's right, when that collaborative relationship is right and you're making theatre in the room together, kind of like a band, mm. then like the the play can get written quite quickly and it just becomes its own weird beast. That it's it, feverish that, sometimes, it, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's the, those are conditions that I work under quite well, especially when I'm making work in that mode that's like studio scale for me to perform, right? Yep. Um, and that, I feel quite at home in that place where I'm... Where I'm yeah, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm making in the room, where there's a clear awareness that these words are someone's breath, probably my breath. And it's me that's speaking them into a microphone to a bunch of people that are going to stand there in this place. And yeah. there's something about that three-dimensional, like shared liveness mm-hmm. that just makes a kind of sense to me when making theatre. So I started making work that way because that's how I made work when I was making work at the Arches and everything. Um, and that was just the, my way into doing stuff. I didn't know that I was a playwright in any conventional sense. It I was see. only after some of those things got a bit of recognition that folk were then like, oh, maybe you should, maybe you're a playwright. And I was like, well, maybe I am. Yeah. But then I had a lot of learning to do about how to work as a playwright, how to sit at a desk and respond to people's notes and just write. Do you know? Like that was actually a big, I had a bit of distance to, to, to travel there in terms of catching up with other folk whose way in was to just do that, just to do that. From to, the off. Yeah, yeah, from yeah. the off. And then send, like <laughs> Douglas Maxwell used to run a workshop where he'd empty all his um, rejection letters out onto the floor at the start, you know? So like, <laughs> the, like, and that's a great, a great, compelling image, you know? Um, yeah. But, because uh, there was loads of them, which is amazing, because Douglas is, is brilliant, but that was <laughs> yeah. his point. Um, but he's a guy like so many others who's who was sitting right in place and then sending them off, sitting right in place and sending yep, them off. Yep. I wasn't really doing that. That's not how I was making plays. And so the whole process of sitting down to 
engage in the kind of more conventional uh, writerly commissioning process. Yeah, it's yeah. been a journey for me over these last few years. I, th- I, I would like to think that I'm there now, but I don't always feel like I've got the big answers for folk when they're like, how do you write a play like this? I go, it took me a while to figure it out and I still don't really know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it comes it, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I, yeah. I read yeah. somewhere, I can't remember where it was, but it was saying, you know, if you have ever made a thing, mm-hmm. then you've got a process. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. For all the admonishment you give yourself for that process you say that's not part of the process i was eating kit kats that's yeah. not part of the, but, yeah. but the thing came out and what so i've learned i think process. what i've learned i think in terms of combining those processes is that part of my process and i think this is actually part of everyone's process uh, that writes for theater uh, whether it's consciously built into the process or not part of my process is absolutely about the words being in the room with other voices and other folk and other um, collaborators um, as part of the development of the script and that should seem obvious for theatre but it's not and actually I think that theatres are getting better at recognising that that new writing theatres are getting better at recognising that but the conventional beat for beat steps of the commissioning model of how we commission playwrights doesn't actually really account for that that well Uh, it's structured around this kind of fictitious idea that you can create a play by just treating a play like a two-dimensional literary object do you know mm-hmm. what i mean like you're just focusing on the words you write and nothing a book else. and you yeah, exactly. people to read exactly and actually that's not that's only part of it that's only mm-hmm. part of it it's an important part of it it's an important part of it but it but so even when writing in that way now for me there comes a point when i'm like this needs to get into a room and i might actually make some and it needs to be ready to get past a theater that's then going to then you know, to get past the decision-making process where someone's like, I will now invest resources into this. Of course, the room. Yeah, of course it needs to be ready. Of course it needs to be of a standard. Yeah. But to get into that, once in that room, I will then always be open to going, well, actually, this is this bit needs to change entirely or this bit needs to... Because there's some things that you can only really discover at that point, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think that people are often clear enough to young or new playwrights about that reality. I think... There's still a quite um, pervasive wrong idea that you can write a play entirely by yourself in your own wee room and then hand it over to someone and say, don't touch it, it's perfect. Because you just actually don't know until it's yeah. breathing. I think there's yeah. a more traditional thing that where that did happen. Yeah, yeah. But then there's the confusion between the word write and the word write, isn't mm. there? Because you, you hear write and you think... Mm-hmm. scribbling but yeah. actually you're a playwright you're a maker of plays yeah, exactly. you talk about making plays yeah yeah exactly that's that makes it much clearer yeah i think so i think so and actually what yeah if you think about then the multiple um meanings of the word play as well of play mm. as a as a verb play as an activity as an act of shared kind of exploring and doing that is fun and creative yeah, and yeah. right in the way that you've just used it with the ght which is what it is in playwright uh, which is like how how, how what it was more like a like to rot something to fashion something so mm. someone who creates the conditions for play and creation to happen in is a more interesting way to think of it than mm. someone who writes plays even though you also are someone who writes plays and you do actually have to be a writer too of course you are well, but it's just that, that it's just that that's part of being Paradox. a writer yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah, that's so you were talking about this new play and, and one of the characters is a is a middle-class woman yes who's a writer yeah now do you have a technique for approaching writing for someone who's so not like you yeah. i.e. a woman I mean because there's a lot of talk about men writing women yeah, and yeah. how that's done uh, I think that the fact it's funny because um, 
you have to be able to write folk that are not you. Of course you do. Mm. But then all your characters are also always going to be an extension of your own experiences in some ways as well. Um, yeah. Probably. I don't know if I could actually die by that statement, but I think it's true, as I say it just now. Uh, who knows? But I think um, as a, for me as an actor, it's about... Um, what would happen if I was in this situation? Yeah. It's kind of like a version of me that has these experiences and there's, then we play that. There's a big and current and very important conversation happening right now about cultural appropriation and stuff. And as a middle class, white, straight guy writing stories, it's like that's something that I'm going to always want to be very conscious of and, yeah. and, and, and uh, have a degree of humility around how I approach that conversation and to always try and listen. Um, I... I it's that's not to say that I don't that I think everyone should just relentlessly and only write their own experience because I think that's not a writer's job because I think that misses out an important part of what a writer's job has to be which is about creating a space for empathy mm. and that empathy has to start with your own work and your own storytelling and so for me empathy and a genuinely empathetic relationship with the character that you're writing uh, coupled with um, a genuine commitment to research if that character is of a culture that is different to yours or is of a social situation that is different to yours yeah, to, to actually yeah. take seriously researching that gap between you and the character and trying to bridge it rather than just assuming that you can just write this because you're the writer and you know then uh, empathy and research I guess are like the two big mm -hmm. th the things that are important there I think but it's not just um, it, 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 it's not just the, the woman that's different from me. So she's a she's a, she's a she's a woman, and and I'm not. But then this this the, the other guy is a 17 year old boy, and I'm not. I was once, but he's um, well, he's, but, he's yeah. but, but I'm not one now, you know. And he's and so that's also a difference. He's also growing up on a on, on a scheme that's not where I grew up, and that's also a difference. And that's yeah. so both of those characters are different from me. Both of them contain shades of me. In fact, the play is very much an exercise in me publicly working out some of my own shit. I think <laughs> it's more interesting than that. That sounds rubbish. Do come, book a ticket. Um, but like, uh, uh, they're both vectors for aspects of of of, sure. of 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 some aspect of myself. But they're also both incredibly different from me too. Mm. Uh, and that's just the nature of the beast. But isn't that what we're doing as artists? Is, is publicly working out some of our stuff? Aye, I think so. And to I think, some to be honest, I think I was a little bashful about saying that, but I think that is true. I think that's just, that is that is some to some degree what's going on. It, where that becomes a problem is when that's just so massively nepotistic that that's all that it is. It has to be about sharing that out to be the start or an inviting in of a useful conversation or an even just an entertaining night or so or people can identify yeah with it, ha it, as it well. has to be for it will always come from that yeah but it has to be absolutely for something other than just serving yourself because that's when it's dead uh and if it's that's therapy. Well, that's exactly. What for. Exactly. And if but so if you're if you're if you're if you're more interested in starting a conversation with a group of people wider than yourself, yeah, yeah, then that's a, then that's a useful useful impulse. So at some point when you were growing up, did you have a cognitive like realization that your way of processing the world was through making up stories or performing? Or? No, I don't think I did. Um, I was always into the arts at school. Um, I went. I was always into artsy subjects at school, but yeah. that included art um I, it's funny it's just called art isn't it but that which, <laughs> art, which yeah, i would so now broad. call visual art but at school was art it's art yeah. um uh and I, I i don't think i really knew i didn't have any clear sense of what it is i wanted to do i studied theater studies at glasgow university and in many ways i went to university as opposed to applying for art school or drama school simply because it felt 
like less of a commitment. Right. Like applying to go to art school felt like a decision that I was going to pursue that thing for the rest of my life. Well, you could switch to English yeah, or something yeah, if you yeah, were at uni. It, it, uni. Uni felt like a different thing. Uni felt like an opportunity to just kind of not decide for another four years. Yeah, even though you're ways. kind of vaguely specific. Even though you're kind of, because <laughs> I was like, right, especially in Scotland where you have that extra year tacked on at the beginning where you can do an extra subject that you could then maybe actually choose to do for your degree. Mm-hmm. So it was like, well, I just did theatre studies and film and TV studies right. and sociology. And I was like, well, maybe I'll just do a degree in sociology if that turns out to be better i don't know so um <laughs> what a world. So, so, so yeah i didn't have any clear clear sense of like of, of calling or anything this is what i do mm-hmm. i sort of fell into each thing at each stage in the university i started mucking around with people that were making sort of experimental devised theater together and in the way that students on a theater course do sort yeah. of like ripping off go island and the worcester group and forced entertainment and One insisting does. that you are the first people in the world ever to have done these things and then it's um, let's take it to the fringe let's take it to the fringe well actually <laughs> we had a, we had a step more local at the time because we were like let's take it to archie's live which they oh, were kind yeah. enough to let us do um who was in that with you this, this was a big mad uh uh, collective and I was still at uni when we did our first Archie's live show because I was one of the youngest in it we were we, we, the name of the collective was For We Are Many and uh, which is pure it's quite quite a quite a name isn't it strong it's uh, strong, strong. Um, and uh, who else was in that uh, a guy called Fred Gray who's uh, now down in London working as an actor and director he went to RADA after um, uh, Scarlett McGlynn and Phil Spencer who then oh, yeah. went to Sydney and set up a theatre company there and a whole bunch of folk who uh, ultimately decided to go and do other things with their life other than make theatre which left me and mm. so people either left for London, <laughs> Sydney or just stopped making theatre to do something else mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and so that kind of left me on my own with tearing tickets at the Arches going I don't really know how to do any of this mm-hmm. uh, but, but I, guess, I guess I have to make a solo show now because I'm literally on my thought <laughs> and was Adrian Howells around because uh, he must have taught you didn't Adrian he? Howells taught me at uni yeah he was a huge huge enabling encouraging influential guy uh, yeah yeah I mean of course he and was. also a solo artist yeah and also a solo artist in a yeah. really interesting yeah, and actually way. It, the, one of the so one of the things about making a solo show was just purely circumstance and falling into it in the way that I just described mm. but the other thing was having that introduced to me as an idea at university by folk like Adrian Howells and Dee Hedden. Dee Hedden did a course called Autobiography and Performance that was quite influential on the show that I ended up making, which was an autobiographical storytelling show called Hitch. Uh, So that was the first show I made. I don't know why I'm telling you about that. Bloody hell. Um, Simply to say that I fell into it all. Yeah. And so then the next show I made was also a one-man show monologue type thing because that show had went quite well and I thought I better see if I can actually do this or if that was just a fluke. Of course. Um, The difficult second album. Exactly. And then that show was called Beats and then that was like quite good quite fond of that one other mm-hmm. people liked it too and then that got me some some more gigs writing plays in a more conventional sense but each one of those things was just something that i kind of landed onto mm-hmm. if you know what i mean yeah rather totally. than like went i'm gonna be a playwright yeah well yeah. that's refreshing i think because it, it debunks some myths yeah that's what you're doing a lot of in the last wee while it's debunking yeah. myths i think oh, that's interesting the other thing i i want to know a bit about is is the idea stage of these pieces yeah sure. is it about i have to do something about this or is it i have to do something so i need to think of something or what right i so i i think in the last few years um a lot of the stuff that i've been doing has sometimes been a bit more responsive as you as 
as you move to being in, in, in you know working more regularly and you know being establishing a bit more mm-hmm. then a lot of the time sometimes you're doing um gigs where someone needs to recruit a writer for a job that they have an idea of like sure. so for example this year uh, I, I um wrote a piece for uh, Lou Kemp at Perth Theatre that was a verbatim uh, piece about uh, agriculture and farming, speaking to farmers in the Perthshire rural community. Uh, and it became a big, weird conversation about climate change and Brexit and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, that was because Lou had a really clear idea that she wanted to make a piece that was dealing with these current issues for that constituency that makes up an important part of her audience yes. to be able to make a rural touring show to take to them. Um so that's like a set of ideas that are already in play about what this play is going to be before I'm brought in to sort of deliver that. Do you mm-hmm, know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so actually, quite a lot of the work sometimes is 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 joining in a collaborative conversation when a lot of those parameters have already been set. The stuff that's more like this is my thing and I want to do this thing now, yeah, comes from an idea or a feeling or an impulse. Like I mentioned, heads up, heads up came from a place of feeling like. I just wanted to do something now that responded to how I felt about living in the world now when so much of it seems to be built on crisis and mm. unsustainable um, uh, relations between people. And I just had a feeling that I wanted to do something about that and that the, and I had an instinct that the way to tell that story was, would be to the, the way to explore that would be to tell an apocalypse narrative. So I told an end-of-the-world story right. um, that that was fun to write a sort of verbose sci-fi biblical narrative like that in some ways um but that comes that came from a place of this is the thing that i feel i need to write now and it just needed to that's one of the reasons it just splurged out so quickly i think and is there something about the nature of the work being solo that means that you can get it out quicker from that impulse i think so if you're gonna if you're willing to self-produce and be at the coal face and scrape together all that stuff do you know what yeah. I mean I can't I've got to a stage now where I can't work like that all the time mm-hmm. one of the reasons in fact Square Go took a while off the, to get off the ground was because me and Gary just decided we weren't going to do that with this one mm-hmm. that like because you know we were we were gonna we were gonna put it to people, and if someone really wanted to do it, they would find the resources to do it, and then it would happen. And if that wouldn't wasn't gonna happen, then it wasn't gonna happen. Um, and then that did happen. But I think yeah. that comes with with time and age and experience and and, 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 and a willingness okay. to know that we can just wait for that one. Well, heads up, I was just like I had a few different things going on that were all like more conventional plays in development, and they were all taking a while. And I just mm-hmm. had this impulse to do this thing now. I was like, I just want to make a show like I would have made five years ago under the conditions I would have made it five years. Ago go and bring it to an audience myself so for that one I was like I'm just gonna pull together quite a lot of that myself now I worked with a producer a guy called Tom Serrell who's amazing and he actually so it wasn't self-produced Tom produced it but a lot of that kind of like initial momentum of getting the thing off the ground was was was, was me so you do have to be willing to put that work in I think mm-hmm. also is there a thing about the solo pieces being more about these ideas that are burning in your soul mm. And you're telling your take on the world, and the other pieces being more made to order or about I, other it'd things. Be, it'd be convenient for me if I could draw that distinction quite easily, because then I could com- compartmentalise my working life in a way that began to make some kind of sense. But unfortunately, <laughs> not. It's no. like it just so happens that, like, um, certainly all the solo pieces that I've made would correspond to that idea, because I'm not making solo shows for anyone else's 
benefit. No well, one's come to me and said, yeah. no one's coming to me and saying, Kieran, can you write this thing and can you perform it? I mean, that might happen one day, but they tend to have a different set of ideas for what they want to do if they want to bring me on as a writer. Do you know? Yeah. Um, but that's but a lot of the stuff that I'm writing for other performers or for a more conventional director-led context is also stuff that is like. Like mouthpiece that's coming on at the trav, as I just mentioned, was something that feels like me working out my own shit. Do you know what I mean? It's very mm. much coming from a place of a thing that I feel an impulse to write about. Do you know? So there's a there's a happy mix between those two things, and I like it that way, to be yeah. honest. Like, uh, like, uh, 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 there's if you can, like the gig with Lou earlier this year was really great because I just came to it with an openness to find out a bunch of stuff and yeah. and it had already bedded into it a real collaborative relationship between the two of us which I really thrive in I really like collaborating with other artists and so so I it's, it's a mixed bag mm. it's a mixed bag Brian and then as your as a writer what's What's your relationship to directors? Is there a way that you like that thing to go? Because people do it differently, don't they? Yeah, uh, yeah, it does. It works really, really differently. Um, as a writer who often performs some of my own work and then has a director in that process to direct me as an actor in that work, then that mm-hmm. gets even more complicated still. And the whole thing just has to be built on uh, a dialogue and on trust and respect and also a willingness to f- have fun and and push each other and challenge each other uh alex swift who co-directed um heads up with julia todovan uh i've been developing for a while another uh play with him called an injury and one of the things that i was doing in writing that was just trying to bam alex up by writing impossible stage directions and (laughs) like there's something about having that kind of throwdown relationship as well when that's that's fun and means you can push each other do you know mm. um but each relationship's totally different julia todovan has been a completely key relationship with me as a collaborator over the creation of some of these really significant pieces mm-hmm. principally as a director or co-director but then also that takes on a kind of dramaturgical role as well when you're working with new writing um so you have relationships that you go back to, I think, again and again yeah. because the, because they work. But then sometimes you work with someone new for the first time, and it just breathes a totally different life into stuff. Where it doesn't work is where you just have a different understanding of what it is you're making, mm. and that becomes impossible to bridge. And you're ticking against the clock because the thing's going to get made, and either you end up with this muddy compromise that's what no one wanted, or you something's got to give and then someone ends up feeling creatively disempowered do you know what i mean so it's like or everyone yeah or everyone so So these things exactly so these things kind of can happen and it's and 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 that's a shame and that's not ever anything personal necessarily between folk it's just that sometimes the right relationship doesn't click on the project Mm -hmm. i guess yeah do you ever sit on uh, audition panels for your own work um yeah i have done How's that? Um, uh, I find it nauseating in terms of the anxiety <laughs> it produces in me on behalf of the people auditioning. Yeah, because totally I think partly because I'm also a performer and stuff as well. It's sort of like I just, I just want to say to absolutely everyone that comes in through the room, you were great. You were generous with your time. Thank you for being here. Like, and also like, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, and thank you for coming and engaging, even in this brief way with the words that I've written that's meaningful for me like you just want to be and unfortunately the whole setup in the theatre industry is often 
often does not honour that uh, commitment and that uh, and that relationship well enough. Mm. Yeah, too many stories of folk not getting um, even a cursory note to tell them no thanks after an audition or whatever. I think the way oh, that yeah, we treat actors common. in this industry is on those terms like abhorrent actually mm, mm-hmm. uh so I, I you've got all of that going on you've got all those mad power dynamics at play in the room going on when you're sitting in an audition and and, I, and I, uh, especially early on a few years ago I, I found that very very hard dynamic to live with i would just and probably made me an incredibly unhelpful person in the room um just twisted up just, just twisted like, up ah! narrow and everyone be thinking what the hell am i doing wrong the guy looks like he's about to have a seizure um <laughs> but i'm just nervous on their behalf i've totally. got better at that i've got better at that now uh uh, but um, but I do. There is always that, always that dynamic. But you must yeah. occasionally get surprised as well by people's what they give. Absolutely, you say, I never knew that that could be. But like that's, that. this is especially as I mentioned again, is for someone who's who's a lot of my stuff, particularly on, was writing for myself to perform. It means that's a part of the process that was new to me when I first started writing yeah, for other folk. Is it such? Yeah, I was like, oh, suddenly, like, oh wow, these are like like these people are breathing this completely different life into this and teaching me so much about what this thing actually is yeah um and that's just that's just so gratifying as yeah. a writer so yeah when people come and they do that even just in the audition room that's great when people do that over the rehearsal process that's amazing or even just watching folk do it night on night on stage and you go that mm. this has just told me so much that i didn't know about what this play is and how it works uh so i actors are actors are brilliant yeah they are <laughs> Do you ever go back and see something after a few shows and, and feel like you're watching a different thing? Uh, sort of. And I think, although sometimes I think that's also just to do with my relationship with it having shifted. I yeah, get, yeah. I sit and watch, if I sit and watch something that I've written, I just, I get, I just get the, the again, it's, it's the lump in the throat and the, and the, um, the powerlessness. I'm yeah. quite, because when you're performing your own stuff, you can put a game face on. Or if something goes wrong or... It's you can on just, me. Yeah. You're still kind of like... People ask, you know, get nervous performing your own work. And I get much more nervous not performing my own work mm-hmm. because of the powerlessness, the, relinqu- the complete relinquishing of responsibility where you just sit in the dark and it all plays out in front of you and there is absolutely nothing you can do about any of it. Horrible. Whereas sitting on, standing on stage telling a story... If things start to go wrong, if there's if there's a technical failure or if people start walking out and the room suddenly feels weird, it's on me to manage that on behalf of the room, to marshal the room, to keep this thing going. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'm much more comfortable in that role than I am sitting in the dark, having relinquished all of that. So, um, so if I feel like I'm seeing a completely new show, if I go back three nights later, it's mostly because... I've got through that thing of sitting in the room for the first time, you know, like, and, and yep. some kind of cloud has cleared a little bit and I can actually watch the play now. Like, yeah, that's uh, true. I didn't, I, I wrote a, a musical for the Oran Moore and it wasn't yeah. until the, the last day of that week that you were able to see it and hear it properly. I sat and watched it and I enjoyed it. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well done, everybody. Yeah, exactly. The other days it was just terror, complete exactly, terror. Exactly, yeah, exactly. curling. Exactly. And they were all great. Yeah, exactly, of course. But your relationship with it is totally different to anyone oh, else in the room. Yeah, nothing really yeah. changed except yeah. my, my head, I suppose. <laughs> so when you're in the shed, mm-hmm. is that where it all happens now? Because you've, you've stopped well, we've, the we've, cafe. We've only culture. been in this gaff that, we're, that I live in now for about a year. So um, I before then I used to um, I used to what would I do? Well, before we had kids, then I would just work in the house, and that was fine. You could clear mm. a bit of space, and that was easy. But then suddenly, the desk that I was using as a writing desk became a 
nappy changing table and mm-hmm. that's that, that's a whole other function for a desk isn't it and, it I, sure and is. I kind of had to get out of the way so for for a couple of years there i was spending all my time in cafes libraries mm. doing that kind of like writer hobo thing kind of mm-hmm. finding a different week on it to do this that and the other and it's nice being out and about you know like i do kind of miss that a little but it's no way to get a focused environment for actually writing you know like it's oh yeah i'd find a million other things and just oh. i should pop across the road and get this absolutely um, yeah. just walk by absolutely absolutely so um so so the shed is more focused ah yeah it's a place where i can there, there's a desk that does not move mm. you know that's and i can leave my my laptop sitting on it sitting on it right now mm. next to a printed copy of the script that i'm working on which has notes in it and those things don't have to get packed away into a rucksack that's and those nice. things don't have to get cleared away they're physically there and mm. they will still be there at the page that I've left them when I return to them. And that feels absolutely amazing. That's like a huge luxury yeah. to be able to do that. So, um, but really important as well. So yeah, that's that's where it happens. Well, I was talking to uh, Rona Monroe about Aye. her process and stuff. Yeah. And she was saying, you know, anyone who says that they sit, they have to get up in the morning and sit for eight hours and write yeah. is lying. Yeah. Now I don't know if that's true because yeah. my process is all over the place yeah, as, yeah, a, yeah. as a creator. But um, what what would your thoughts be on that? I think it's different for different folk, and I would always absolutely respect what someone like Rona has to say about it, and especially so when it chimes with my own experience. That's quite validated. <laughs> yeah, um, there are folk who do that, I think, and folk who do that and get and make a real virtue of it. There's mm-hmm. writers that I've spoken to who really, really make a virtue of going. You put your office hours in, and even when you think it's not good, you write it. And you mm. write it, and you write it, and you write it, and you make sure that you hit a target for that day, or that you hit a set number of hours for that day, and you, you have to put those office hours in because it's your job. And that is how you write, that's how you get better at writing. By mm-hmm. not, m- There's something about the dedicated, uh, almost artisanal, like craftsman-like relationship to that, the kind of pragmatism of that, mm-hmm. that I quite admire. Go into the studio Just, and I will go and do the thing right and i will show up at work because it's my job and mm-hmm. i will not that demystifying all the romantic kind of i will wait for my muse to yeah. like do you know like I, I really admire that i can't quite do it mm-hmm. for me if it's not flowing if i don't have i'd sometimes sometimes you will write two thousand words and they're all glorious and that's mm. what you've done that day mm-hmm. other days you will argue with tories on twitter and that is just what you've done that day and maybe that's just the way that it is um you've a punch out for that for sure uh, to be fair i probably do that more than i need to but that's uh, i'm not al- if you ever see me on twitter i'm not always skiving off work mostly i am just doing it on my short breaks and uh, shifting around although i have actually deactivated my account just now so i could finish this bloody draft that's good um that could I, be good you know too. yeah it's just good actually it's good for my mental health as well i think actually that mm. whole world is bonkers and quite ugly but uh, but yeah, I I think that um, I think I would agree with Rona, uh, or agree with what I think it is you've said that Rona said, which is that you can't quite just churn it out like that. That sometimes you have to be alive to the to the spontaneity of when things do and don't mm-hmm. happen, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's just because it's a different kind of work, isn't it? From yeah, an office maybe job. it just doesn't fit into yeah. that that type of mold exactly you were talking about you referenced mental health and i yeah. wonder how much you think your mental health is wrapped up in in your work and how it's affected by your work yeah it's amazing people say oh you're so lucky you get to do what you love 
Of course that's true. There's yeah. absolutely no way in which that's not true. It doesn't mean that it doesn't also have a flip side. Mm. And the flip side is that when you do, in, you know, in inverted commas, what you love for your job, like we do, the distinction between your just basic means of income and employment and your creative uh, identity and self-worth mm. and all those things are like completely bound up together and you you it becomes very hard to, to separate them and switch them off and so your whole sense of well-being and self-worth can get bound up in a whole bunch of quite functional work stuff which is like is this play going to go on and is this and that, all that can be quite can be quite um heavy duty or like sometimes and sometimes I do crave a relationship with my work where I just get to feel basically all right about myself for most of the time as opposed to the kind of weird oscillating between massive almost overwhelming giddying uh validation that comes from something going well yes and the kind of like crushing sense of failure and inadequacy that comes from a series of rejections all at once do you know mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and the anxiety and doubt about whether you will be able to continue doing this do you know and then you add like kids into the mix there and you're like well, well what will i do if i can't continue doing this because there's this 10 year black hole in my cv that says all i know how to do is make devised theater and make up stories and so like you can't really it's so hard to yeah, think of doing anything yeah, else exactly at this point. yeah and so, and that that focuses the mind somewhat. That realization. Oh, like, well, with it. <laughs> couple of rejections there, but uh, back to the grindstone because <laughs> yeah. um, because you've got to make it work. But there is something about your relationship, I think, with your sense of well-being and your mental health that is quite ravaged by the conditions of working under an industry that functions in that way. Absolutely. And sometimes I long for not being in it, like I really do. Yeah. But then, but then other times it's the best thing in the world. So, so what do you do when you finish up? writing and and you are, you do have that feeling that yeah. that emptiness or that anxiety about what's going to happen how do you deal with it uh i don't know really badly a lot of the time um uh sometimes i get down in the dumps about work stuff all sorts of different work stuff and it can really get in the way of the actual work as well mm. so uh, you've just got to be able to be away from this is the whole other thing that the suspicions that i have about the desk thing they show up and you do the desk thing you do the work at the desk and then you is that sometimes the work is closing your computer and going for a walk for two hours mm. and that looks a lot like skiving and in many ways it is skiving and if someone walked past you and said what are you doing and you said working they'd be like I right <laughs> right but sometimes the work is in clearing the head from all of that stuff so that yeah. you can come back to the other bit the writing bit less um clouded by all of that so sometimes you need to just be able to go and spend time with your family or need to go for a big walk sometimes my best ideas come to me like in the shower or when i'm cooking or whatever when you've mm-hmm. just had a little bit of room for something to tick over naturally rather than like under a point of strain um so i don't really have a method for what i do when i'm feeling like uh angsty about mm-hmm. the theater industry and my place in it mm-hmm. but certainly like taking a break and letting your mind just operate on a different kind of level and giving yourself a bit of room to breathe is an important part of that and an important part of the creative process, I think. I can't remember who it was. It was a playwright, I might, maybe it was Nicola McCartney that said it. I can't remind. Um, it said something about um, daydreaming being part of the job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I definitely heard that. And that's, and I think that's good advice, uh, essentially. Is and there I a lot of that in your day, do you think? Is there enough of it in your day? Ah, it's a good question. I think the hard thing, because... 
it is giving yourself permission for it to be part of the job mm. and for it not just to look like because there's a relentless pressure understandably to produce uh, and of course, you know, there should be, and I'm a sucker for having to extend deadlines as any um, literary department that's worked with me is, that's listening to this will know. <laughs> um, and so, of course, you can't make excuses for yourself, but you have to also be able to give yourself permission to go, what we're doing now is not trying to hit targets. What we're doing now is allowing some room for ideas to breathe and going for a walk and thinking about things in a different way. That has to happen too, if you're a writer. You have to be able to observe things. You have to have a room to be able to drink things in. You have to have room for things to tick over and just evolve in unexpected ways. You can't always be a content provider, producing output, producing words, you know, on, on demand. doesn't you, work like that. But you're using terminology that we've become really used to. Ah, absolutely. Content. Exactly. Content. Things being on demand. Yeah. And that's, we live in that world. Don't yeah, we? absolutely. So I yeah. guess it's hard not to get bound up in those ideas. Well, and, and, and of course, you have to be able to function within that world and on and within the logic of that world mm. to be able to survive and make a, make a meaningful career out of it, to be able to make it actually your uh, job, right? You have to be able to sustain yourself within that world. Mm. But you can't let the terms of that world become the be-all and end-all because they're fundamentally not good for the production of art, mm. do you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a constant tension there between those two things, mm. I think. And then what we do is we play in the tension. Yeah, I think so. You, you, you have find to. the tension and, and that's play part with of it. what can be stressful and everything. But yeah, I think that is, I think that's, I think that is part of what we have to do. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, let you go back to the shed and play. Thanks, man. Play I'm play, play, play back to the shed and play with the tension. <laughs> now Thanks. that you're feeling all yeah. g'd up yeah, to yeah, go and do that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, bye. <laughs> Thanks for being here. I've sent him back to do his work in the shed. <laughs> He's been banished back to the shed, and I'm sure more wonderful things will come out of the shed before long. So, yeah. Great to talk to Kieran, and uh, I thank him for his time. And people are amazingly not just generous with their time, but also patient because schedules change all the time, uh, mine and theirs. And um, stifling a yawn because it's quite late, <laughs> um, but I wanted to get the episode out as soon as I could. So uh, yeah, I'm not going to edit that. Sometimes I edit my yawns. Would you believe that? I'm not doing it tonight. So yes, thanks to Kieran. Thanks to everybody who is in my life, working and otherwise, um, who's been supportive of me over the years, but over the last couple of days in particular. Um, and lastly, I'll say I'm not. Uh, I'm keen to. I'm not trying to make a fuss. I'm not trying to get people to send me messages and say, are you okay? And all that stuff, because I'm fine. Um, but I do want to just try and be honest and open. That's all I'm doing. So if that speaks to you, great. And um, if, it, if it encourages you to talk to somebody else, even better. Thank you so much. Um, this is an arts podcast, but as time goes on, um, the conversations get wider and broader and yet, and you know, and, and at the same time more specific. And I'm cool with that and I'm letting it find its way. We're nearly a year in now and um, I still feel like I'm finding my voice. So I'm really appreciative of people being patient and sticking with it. Um, and before I go, I will mention my sponsors, Purple Panda Media. They did my website and logo design, as I'm sure you know, and they're available on purplepandamedia.com. So until next week, another interview, same time, same place. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, get in touch if you like, pitccpod on Twitter, brian at puttingittogethercast.com. And I'll just say the usual thing I always say at the end of the show. Cheerio now. <laughs>